the subject, as you know, we've been tracking through Genesis 3. The subject is the fall of man through the first 19 verses. Uh, and by way of review, brief review, notice, first of all, this chapter opens up with a conversation with a serpent. And the notes are in the back, by the way, if you need some in the podium back there. Conversation with a serpent in the first five verses, Genesis 3, 1 through 5. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, as we said in the last few weeks, the serpent comes in disguise. This is what he always does. The Satan, Satan rather, comes in disguise, as he always does. This time, in a serpent, he has commandeered the serpent. He has possessed the serpent, as demons and spirits are, are wont to do. And uh, he is approaching Eve, trying to deceive her in this maybe the best disguise of all in this time period. God's forbidden the man and woman to eat from the tree of the garden uh, of, the, of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. We've talked about that several times already. But Satan's goal is to get them to do just that. And in this conversation, first of all, we said last week that Satan cast doubt upon the word of God. Uh, he uh, said in chapter 3, verse 1, Indeed, has God said, has God really said this? You mean God really says this and God really means this? Putting a question mark in the woman's mind. Satan next uh, misinterprets the word. Uh, God had said they could eat freely, expressing his liberality, they could eat freely of all the trees of the garden. Uh, and Satan says, on the other hand, he makes it sound like God is restricting what they can do, what they can eat. And then thirdly, and this is last week, Satan flat, flat out contradicts the word of God by claiming you're not going to die if you eat of this tree. You're not going to die. And this is contrary to what the Lord said, who clearly said, you surely will die if you eat from this tree. That's the conversation with the serpent. That conversation ends, and in verses 6 and 7, we have the compliance of the couple. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And this is the, uh, the couple uh, compliant, in full compliance with Satan. They eat of the tree, and now they become sinners in need of a Savior. And so does the whole world of humanity from then on. That brings us tonight to the confrontation by the Lord. The confrontation by the Lord, which comprises verses 8 to 19. We're only going to look at verses 8 to 13 tonight. God confronts Adam and Eve. Now, how does he do that? He confronts them by asking questions. By asking questions. Look at verse 8. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. 
And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So he's confronting them with these questions that he asked. And he asks four questions to be exact. Verse 9, the Lord says, Where are you? Verse 11, Who told you you were naked? Verse, uh, verse 11 also, Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 13, What is this that you have done? Four questions, four penetrating, searching, piercing questions designed, as always, by the Word of God, to search the uh, thoughts and intents of the heart. And God's going to discover, cause them to discover some things. And no one can do this better than the Lord. No one can do this better than the Word. That's why it's important for us to come to the Word every day, to have our thoughts judged by the Word. And his confronting questions reveal two consequences of sin. First of all, shame, in verses 8 to 10. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, how is this to be explained? Well, the text doesn't explain it in any detail, so I do not know how it could be for sure, how God is said to have been walking in the garden. One possibility is that he appeared in human form. We call that a theophany. You may have heard the term theophany, which simply means a visible manifestation of God. God appears in human form, and you see that periodically in the Old Testament. You see it in Genesis, for that matter. But that's one possibility. Another possibility is that the language used here is just a way to help us understand that God's presence is in the garden, that he's there. For example, you can see, you can look at several examples in the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus 26, that may be in your notes, verse 11 and 12. The Lord says to Israel, I will make my dwelling among you, Israel, and I will also walk among you. I'm going to walk among you and be your God. You shall be my people. In that case, in references like that, he's not literally walking among them in human form. He's not doing that. He's just saying, my presence is going to be with you. And so, however this works out, in verse 8, and I don't think it's a key issue personally, the Lord is there. He's there to communicate with them. It says they heard the sound of the Lord God. That word can be translated sound or voice. So, they either heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden, or they heard his voice speaking. Most translations have it as sound. Again, it can be translated either way in many references. And the bottom line is this, though. They recognize the presence of the Lord. They know he's there. They're very aware of him. It's clear that he's there. They know it. Now, it says it's the cool of the day. That is technically the breezy part of the day. Uh, And that's what the word cool means, breezy or windy uh, part of the day. Probably the evening breeze. Although Calvin says... That's not the evening breeze. He thinks that they went a, a, a whole night, and it's the next morning. And there was a breezy morning, but I don't know where he gets that from. But nevertheless, that's a debate. But it's a breezy part of the day, probably the evening breeze. This seems to have been a regular activity, this idea of the Lord walking in the garden with God approaching them. And now, we don't know. Here's the thing. We don't, listen, first of all, in, these sec- in this section here, the first few chapters of Genesis, there's a lot of questions that we all have. We don't know all the answers to them because the scripture does not give us all the answers that we have questions for. But one thing I, you learn about the Bible is he doesn't need to answer all my questions. 
He's only answering the questions that he, needs, he feels the need to answer. And so we wonder often, why doesn't God say more about this subject? He said enough. What he has said is enough. Now, we don't know how much time has elapsed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, could it have been you know, very consecutive? Could it have been some time that has elapsed? And if that's the case, the Lord could have made a regular practice out of this, where he comes in the garden, approaches them, however he does this, and they have a daily time with the Lord. Jesus is later going to say in John 4.23, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Listen to this. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is looking for worshipers. Are you a worshiper of the Lord? Are you a worshiper of the Lord? Do you worship him in spirit and in truth? Do you worship him daily? as Adam and Eve should have been doing in, in prayer and in the Word. You know, if, if God has saved you by His grace, His reason for saving you is that you worship Him. That may be the primary reason, that you worship Him. That should be a daily activity, a time for us to meet with the Lord. That's what Adam and Eve should have been doing. They should have been worshiping the Lord. They should have been in communion with the Lord. They should have been enjoying His presence. Think about this. The Lord is coming in the garden to be with you, spend time with you, what a blessing. They should have been engaged in communion, but that situation has changed. They've, they've sinned. It's all different now. They've sinned. They're not looking forward, as we read this passage, they're not looking forward to their time with the Lord. They're not enjoying His presence. Uh, in fact, they're, it's just the opposite. And so now the Lord comes to them, not for fellowship, but He comes as one who is seeking, as a, as a good shepherd, who's seeking a sheep who has gone astray, a lost sheep. Verse 7 says, The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Go back to chapter 2. I know we've read it already, or before, but chapter 2, verse 25. This is before the fall. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So prior to the fall... Man and his wife, naked, not ashamed, in a state of innocence. And yet now, after the fall, they're naked, which means they are ashamed. And that's seen by the fact they cover themselves with loin coverings. It's, it's, a re, it's the reverse of what happened before the fall, just the reverse. And so you can see that sin brings shame. That's what we're talking about, shame. Sin brings, do you feel that in your life when you sin? That it brings shame, it brings disgrace, it, it's embarrassing. You try to cover up things. And that leads us to a question which is answered in this passage. How do people under the shame of sin behave? How do the people under the shame of sin behave? And I think we can see from Adam and Eve how they, how they behave. And these actions are so typical of human race ever since then, you've probably seen it happen recently. First of all, people under the shame of sin try to hide from God. They try to hide from God. Now, in Adam's and Eve's case, first of all, the first thing you do is make loin, cover, uh, loin coverings of fig leaves. They find fig leaves. They make loin coverings. This is a desperate attempt, and we said last week this was probably a hurried attempt because they didn't put much together there. And it's probably a desperate attempt because they realized they were naked. Oh, no, what are we going to do now? And because they realize they're naked, that causes them shame, and they try to fix it. Hey, let's sew some fig leaves together to cover our shame here. But that was the scheme they came up with. I can, I can imagine them thinking about this. What are we going to do now? Talking it out. Let's do this. But it didn't solve the real issue. 
Their, the problem they had was deep-seated. It was a problem of the heart. What they were trying to do, think about this, what they were trying to do was a form of self-atonement. How can we atone? We've broken the law of God. What can we do now to fix this situation? And so they make an outward covering for an inward rebellion. But that's not the remedy for the situation. You know, because a man-made solution can never compensate for disobedience to the Lord. And yet people are always coming up with their own solutions to compensate for their disobedience to God, for their sin, for their salvation. How can we be saved? And they come up with all kinds of methods. Their attempts, Adam's attempt to fix things was pathetic at best. All they could come up with is a loincloth. They had done something they had never done before. They had sinned. This is the first time. They had rebelled against God's command, and now they're experiencing this awful feeling of shame, this awful feeling of guilt. How do you fix that? What do you do about that? Certainly not by some hurried effort to try to look. Let's look, try to look presentable before God. Oh, we'll make loin coverings. That's, that's going to make them look presentable before God. Calvin said, there is none of us who does not smile at their folly. We look at that and smile. He says, since certainly it was ridiculous to place such a covering before the eyes of God. It is ridiculous. Calvin goes on to say, in the meanwhile, we're all affected with the same disease. And that's true. It's amazing what people do to atone for their own sins. You've talked to people, I've talked to people about, you know, the gospel and about being saved. And the things they tell us, the things they tell us on how they, were, how they can be saved, well, you know, if I'm good enough, I'll get to heaven maybe. But sin against a holy God is not to be atoned for by human effort. Although many religions teach that. You know, you go to the Catholic priest and he says, well, you know, say 25 Hail Marys. Say 50 Our Fathers. Follow this catechism. Do this deed and do that deed. And they give you the instructions and they think that's the solution. Some people, here's my... Here's the one that I, it's always amazing to me. Some people want to include Christ as a partial part of the, as a part of the solution. <clears throat> he can be part of the, sure, we'll have Christ in this. He'll be involved. <clears throat> He'll be part of the solution to our problem here. But they teach you must also be baptized in addition to that. Uh, you know, in addition to Christ's work on the cross, you have to be baptized or you have to do this or that as if my measly effort to Efforts combined with Christ, think about this, my measly efforts combined with Christ's death on the cross could achieve salvation somehow. That's nothing more than pride, but people do this all the time. People don't need a form of, of self-atonement. They need the atonement which the Lord provides. As uh, Ephesians 2, it's, it's by grace you're saved through faith. That, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. So, don't, so nobody would boast about it. You know, here's the thing. The man and woman, think about this, they knew their creator. They knew he was all-powerful. He created the world. He, they knew this. He created the animals. He created them. All, he created, uh, Adam saw him create Eve. All this stuff, they knew he had all power. He had all authority. He had all wisdom. Yet in spite of this, and they know they could go to him. He was coming after them all the time. They know they could go to him for help. They knew he had all the answers, and yet they don't go to him. They never go to him, even though they know all this stuff. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. By the way, we, 
in verses 9 and 12, the Lord is first addressing the man. All that time to talk to the man. Verse 13, he talks to the woman. But he goes after the man first. Because he's the, the main culprit in this. And his first question is, Adam, where are you? Now, does God know, not know where Adam is? Does he not know this information? Is Adam so well camouflaged by the trees that God can't spot him? He doesn't know where he's at? And as you read through the scriptures, you come across a doctrine that we call God's omnipresence. We can't get involved in everything in that doctrine right now, but I heard Steve Lawson give a, a good, concise definition one time in his sermon. He said, omnipresence is the idea that God is everywhere present with the entirety of his being. He's everywhere present with the entirety of his being. Now, we humans can only be in one place at a time, but God is everywhere present. Think about that. With the entirety of his being. Amazing thought. And since that is true, one thing is certain. You and I cannot hide from God. That's what they're trying to do. We can't do it. There's no place to escape his grasp. We can't do it. Remember Jonah tried to, do, to pull that stunt? In Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, it says twice that Jonah is seeking to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's what it says. It says, well, you know, a lot of people that are, that are disobedient to God, if you ask them about that, they'll give you some lame excuse. Well, you know, I wanted to move to the state. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. Jonah says, no, I'm running from the presence of the Lord. He tells them that. In fact, later on in chapter 1, the men on the ship say, you know, he, this guy told us he was running from the presence of the Lord. He admitted to it. But God doesn't let him get away with that because God had an assignment for Jonah to do, and that is, you're going to go to Nineveh. I know it's difficult. I get it. But that's where you're going to go, to be a witness there. And, and he sees to it that that happens. Now, when it comes to the Lord, you can run, but you cannot hide. You can't hide from God. He's going to find you. He always knows where you are. You're not hiding from God. If you're contemplating tonight getting away from God, think again. Because, you know, you're not going to do that. If, you're, if you say, well, I'm going to do my own thing, it's not going to... Listen, if you belong to him, he's going to track you down. And be thankful for that, that he comes after you. Jeremiah 23, 23 is a good verse for you to memorize. You can memorize the reference quickly. Jeremiah 23, 23 says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Listen to this next statement. Can a man hide himself in hiding places? So I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. That was in reference to the false prophets of Jeremiah's day. They were telling lies, prophesying lies. And God says, I, I hear you guys prophesying lies. I see what's going on here. You think you escape? You think you're out of my jurisdiction? I don't know this is going on? Nothing escapes God's notice. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight. There's no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He sees all of us, and we have to give an account to him of how we live. When we sin against the Lord, and we are disobedient to him, like Adam and Eve were, we often find ourselves not very eager to seek him. You ever been there? You've sinned against God and you didn't exactly run to church after that? We put ourselves spiritually at a distance from him? We're not thinking about reading the Bible at that point. 
We're not, we, we might decide to forsake the assembling of ourselves together to be with the people of God. Because we don't want to be there. We, we want to be away from the light of God's holiness. We don't desire the fellowship of the saints. We prefer to stay home and maybe hide out and, you know, and be under, remain aloof. And the more we can do that, the better off we think we are. But let me tell you, that's a bad place to be. That is a bad place to be. My advice is to come out from, from, you know, from behind your camouflage, wherever you're hiding, and come clean with the Lord. Confess your sin, repent to him. You know, and I wonder, I have to wonder, are some people in our church not at church because they are hiding from God or seeking to hide from God? If that's the reason you're not coming here, then come back to where the light is shining so brightly here. The light of God's word, the light of his holiness, the light, of, the light that is in his church with his people. Come back here. So, so the Lord, if the Lord is present everywhere, why does he say, where are you? Where are you at, Adam? It's not that the Lord doesn't know Adam's physical location. He well knows where he's at. He knows what tree he's hiding behind. He knows. <laughs> as, if, as if the camel, the foliage of the leaves are going to protect Adam from God seeing him. He knows where he's at. But rather... You know, that's why he asks all these questions. The questions are designed to get Adam to consider what he has done, to consider his ways, Habakkuk says, to realize he must confess what he has done, to come to grips with what he's done, to repent of what he's done. Matthew Henry says, God is not asking in what place, but in what condition. What is your spiritual condition, Adam? Where are you spiritually, Adam? That's what he's seeking to find out. Matthew Henry also says, listen to this great statement. Those who by sin have gone astray from God should seriously consider where they are. They are far off from all good. This is where they are. They're far, uh, far off from all good. In the, midst of their, they're, they're in the midst of their enemies, they're in bondage to Satan and on the high road to utter ruin. That's where they are. You know, it would not be a bad idea to ask yourself tonight, where am I with God tonight? What is my spiritual condition? Am I on track with God or am I astray from him? You know, if everybody in this church did that, if we all took spiritual inventory, I think if we rightly assess ourselves, all of us would be on the road to repentance. Adam must give an account to the one who, before whom everything is naked and open, with whom we have to do. He's, God sees all. Psalm 44, 21, he knows the secrets of the heart can't get away from God. We can't escape. We can't escape him in any way, not in any way at all. The Lord comes after the sinner, and he seeks to draw him out of his hiding place. That's what he's doing here. And, you know, it's, the, the, it's interesting. The Lord, who formerly engaged the man in fellowship and worship, now comes after the man as one who comes to seek and save that which was lost. He's coming in that capacity now. The man and woman are now in what John Milton, the poet, called paradise lost. This is now paradise lost. And God is coming after him. And Jesus had the same mission in the New Testament, the same thing. You know, the thing is, we don't seek out God in order to walk with him first. We don't first seek him out. We never do. He seeks us out first. That's what the scriptures teach. In Romans 3, Paul's quoting Psalm 14. And he says, there is none who seeks after God. How many people in this world are seeking after God of their own accord? None. None of their own will are doing this. How, many, how could a spiritually, think about this, how could a spiritually dead sinner seek after God? 
He can't do it. Or why would someone dead in their sins even want to seek after a holy God? They would have no desire at all to do that. God comes after the sinner first. He saves us from our sin. Then he qualifies us. Colossians 1. He qualifies us or he fits us to be his servants. And noticing Genesis 3 here, the Lord does not come in fury and anger and breathing fire and brimstone upon the man and woman. He comes with a question. He could have done that. He doesn't do that. He comes with a question. It's a very gracious approach. Where are you? It's a very gracious approach considering the whole world's been plunged into sin at this point. But one of the truths we learn early in the Bible, early in Genesis, is that God is a God of grace. Yes, he's going to pass judgment, but he's also a God of grace. How do people under the shame of sin behave? They try to hide from God. Secondly, they experience fear. They experience fear. How does Adam reply to the question, where are you, Adam? Look at verse 10. He said, where am I? He said, I heard, who, me? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. What kind of an answer is that? Adam doesn't come out and say, I've sinned against you, Lord. I've sent, I took of the tree, and I repent. That's not how he responds. Instead, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. Before verse 6, he had never uttered those words. He had never been afraid. He didn't know what fear was, like he knows it now. He didn't know what anxiety was. Luther says, now he was terrified by the rustling of a leaf. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. These are the very first words that come out of the mouth of fallen man. This is how we open the, the Bible up after the fall. That's what he says. He hears the Lord God in the garden, and that leads him to fear. Now, why would you be afraid of the presence of the Lord? Why would you be afraid? We should, of course, we should have the fear of God, definitely. We should have the fear of God. We should fear the Lord. Uh, we should have the utmost reverence for him. That's something we should do. But when we are afraid of God, it's because we have done something we know displeases him. We know it. We've offended his holiness. And we are afraid of the consequences. What's God going to think of me now? I better try to sew something together to cover myself up. And they start making irrational decisions. So how do people under the shame of sin behave? They hide from God. They experience fear. Thirdly, they, they evade full disclosure. They evade full disclosure. Adam had been given the opportunity to repent of his sin, but he fails to do that. What does he say, though, in this strange answer? The only thing he has admitted to that he's, is, is this. Well, I'm naked. I am fearful. I hid myself. And that's his answer. And this is not a mere man asking Adam questions. These, there are no other men. This is not a prophet preaching. There are, no other, there are no prophets here. This is the Lord himself probing Adam's fallen conscience and trying to get him to admit, hey, I've sinned. I've done wrong. But so far, he's only admitted to the fact what he knows, what he feels is the obvious. People will do this to us, too, by the way. God has called him out of his hiding place, so he's got to acknowledge that. Well, I was hiding, yes. Uh, he has to acknowledge the fact that he made a loincloth. He did that. That's, that's obvious. He's afraid. He's got to confess that. He does. These are things he can't deny. But to offer a full disclosure of what happened, he doesn't do that. I'm, I'm sure that you guys... And here of counsel people who don't do the same, the same thing. 
they give you a little information. Well, you know, I did this, maybe, and I did that. Well, you know about that. You know I did that. But they don't tell you the whole truth. And Adam is debating the truth here. That people do it all the time. They admit some obvious outward action, but they don't want to admit, they don't want to admit, I'm a depraved sinner. I sinned against God grievously. I have offended him. I am evil to the core. They don't say that. That was Adam's case. He's ashamed. He's afraid. He's miserable, and yet he keeps it all to himself. Doesn't go to God with any of that. Now, in 2 Corinthians 7, there are, it mentions two kinds of sorrow. There's a godly sorrow, and there's a, a, a worldly sorrow, a sorrow of the world. The godly sorrow leads you to true repentance. It's a, it's a kind of sorrow you experience conviction of sin, you repent, you have no regrets as a result of that. You get right with God. Then there is a, another kind of sorrow, a sorrow of the world. It is a sorrow that leads to death. It's the kind Judas Iscariot felt for betraying Jesus. It's just remorse. Mere remorse is all it is. And uh, it, it arises from a sense of guilt, not conviction from the Holy Spirit. And if you remember the story of Judas Iscariot after he uh, betrayed Christ. He feels remorse. And that leads to what? Death. Because the sorrow of the world produces death. That's what it does. And it doesn't, there's no full disclosure of sin. There's no full repentance. It seeks to evade the truth. So how do people behave under the shame of sin? Well, naturally, apart from God's working, they hide from God. Secondly, they're afraid of God. Thirdly, they don't own up to their sin. Fortunately, for Adam's sake, God's going to continue to go after him. And so... The first consequence of sin is shame. Secondly, blame is the next one. Verse 11 to 13. Blame, look at verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now the Lord's first question reveals how Adam you know, is, is in shame, is in a shameful uh, state. And the further questions are going to reveal how we have this tendency to blame other people for our sin. We do this all the time. So he asks the question, who told you you were naked? Who told you? Now think about that. Well, who's around the telling? Was it the serpent that told him that he was naked? No, he didn't mention, the serpent didn't mention anything about nakedness. He just said we'd have a wonderful life if we did what he wanted us to do. Was it Eve? Was it the woman? No, she didn't say anything about that either. Then who was it? Well, it was nobody. Have you noticed that all these questions, the Lord's like a detective, trying to probe deeper to get, we could say an attorney also, trying to probe deeper to get to the bottom of the matter, a divine detective. He's seeking to expose the culprit. I thought of, when I thought of this, I thought of Billy Sunday. I don't know if you know about Billy Sunday or not. Very entertaining. <laughs> One of the guys I wish I could have heard preach in my life. Lived in the early 1900s, well, preached in the early 1900s. Was saved uh, as a drunkard in Chicago. And uh, he preached a sermon entitled God's Detective. One of his illustrious sermons. His text was Numbers 32, 23, which says, Be sure your sin will find you out. That's God's detective. He was right about that. Your sin will find you out. God's going to see to it. God is like that here in this passage, acting like a detective, trying to get to the bottom of the matter. And he says, who told the man, who told you you were naked? Well, nobody did. 
But his conscience, his fallen conscience told him. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. They knew it. Their conscience had now been violated. They knew it. Now, we know, now think about this. We know when we've sinned. We may hide from it. We may try to excuse it. In fact, we do this all the time. We try to rationalize it. Uh, all these things, we try to justify it. But we know in our heart if we sin or not. And Adam knew. And the Lord doesn't waste any time going to the next question where he says, have you eaten? Here's the, here's the crux of the matter. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Is that what you've done? Now, he, he, now God knows what he did, but he's trying to get Adam to open up. And the Lord has given Adam another opportunity to confess his sin. This is a golden opportunity. Let me ask it this way, Adam. You're, when I asked where are you, you gave me this weird answer. Let me ask you this way. Did you eat of the tree which I command you not to eat? That's pretty point blank. Yes or no? Well, another opportunity to confess. This could be asked this way. Have you violated my word? Did you transgress the clear command of Genesis 2, 16 and 17? Is that what you did? And now the man has the opportunity to come clean. And he can say, yes, Lord, I did. I sinned against you and your word. But he doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. He finds no fault in himself at all, but he finds fault with others. In fact, two to be exact, his wife and the Lord of all people. First his wife. The woman, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Well, that's true. That's true in and of itself. Verse 6 says, look at verse 6, she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Some helper she is, huh? She did that. But notice how Adam puts the emphasis on the woman. Strong emphasis, being at fault. In one sentence, he mentions her twice. Look at what he says. The woman you gave me, she. The woman, she, gave me from the tree. It was her, she's to blame. You know, Adam's been very evasive so far. Very evasive. Now he's very definite. Now I can say something that's very definite. It's the woman's fault. That's... The way this is worded shows that Adam is distancing, he's distancing himself from the woman. He's putting her at arm's length as if to say, she did it, the woman, that woman over there, she's the one. You know, unfortunately, this happens all the time in marriages and in other relationships. People say they blame their spouse, they blame their friends, they blame their family, their parents, their sons and daughters. You know, if my wife had just been submissive, like the Bible says, our marriage could have been salvaged, possibly. Somebody else says, well, if my husband was a spiritual leader God wanted him to be, then we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. You ever heard that? You ever said that? Don't raise your hand. Or what about a son or daughter? Says, what? boy, if my mom or dad would have raised me properly, then I, I would have been better prepared for life. Or... There was, a guy, there was a guy, Sandy and I met some years ago. We met him for the first time. For the first time, we met, meet this guy, and he says this. Hello. We shake his I'm so-and-so, and I want you to know that two of my daughters are not living for the Lord. First thing out of his mouth. Well, I got to know the guy a little bit. And after I got to know him, I realized why his two daughters are not living for the Lord. I wouldn't be living for the Lord growing up under his roof either. But it seems like everybody 
is blaming, they're, uh, they're a victim of circumstances in our society. Isn't that always the case? Uh, well, you know, it's his fault. It's my parents' fault. They did this. They did that. I blame them. People are shifting the blame. Uh, bad, I bet you hear this a thousand times in your court cases. Somebody else did it, not me. It wasn't me. Rare is the person who owns up to his sin and doesn't pass the buck and doesn't excuse himself. But Adam places the blame on the woman. She did it. Can't you see that? She, it's, don't you not know that in Genesis 3, 6 it says she gave me to eat of the tree? But there's, he's not through placing the blame. He goes on to say the woman you gave me is responsible. You gave me that woman. Now he's getting to the foundational source. In his mind, he's getting to the foundational source of the problem. God is at fault. After all, he made this woman. He brought her to me. He, did he not do this? Didn't he, do? he brought her to him. There's another word in this sentence Adam uses twice to point the finger at God. It's the word gave. He says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree. God, you gave me this woman. She gave me the forbidden fruit. The whole thing can be traced back to you. It's your, your fault. Clearly, you're at fault here. And so the one who has been so evasive before now is beginning to sound like who? The accuser of the brethren. Satan. You're the one that's doing this, God. You're, you're, you're at fault here. The woman's at fault here. Certainly, I'm not at fault here. Everybody's at fault except for me. Have you ever blamed the Lord for your lot in life? You, why did God allow this to happen to me? Why did God bring me to this place? Why didn't he intervene in my life uh, like I think he should have? Why doesn't he do something to help me conquer sin in my life? The reason I'm sinning is because of God. It's all his fault. Why doesn't God do what I want him to do? Basically, we might as well say that. Why doesn't he listen to me? I've got a better plan than he does. There was a poet by the name of Robert Burns who wrote a poem to that effect. He said, Lord, you know that you have formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. In other words, I'm this way because of you, Lord. My sin isn't my fault, it's yours. You made me like this, therefore, don't blame me. Blame yourself. That's what he says in the poem. James sets the record straight, James, the writer James, in James 1.13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God's not responsible for my sin. He didn't cause me to sin. He didn't cause you to sin. So stop blaming God for your sin. Stop blaming him for your bad attitude, for your Sinful actions for your unedifying words. Well, I said all these things. Surely God must be at fault somehow. That's on me. That's on you. And likewise, stop blaming people. Here's a novel idea. Why don't you take the responsibility for your sin for your, on yourself? Why don't I take it on myself? And so, all this blame from Adam. And finally, the wo woman. Look at verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord finally turns his attention to, from the man to the woman after all these questions. Now it's just one for the woman. The other question, what is this you have done? And she, too, refuses to accept the blame. She places it on the serpent. You know, I'll give her this much. She admits to being deceived. She was deceived, and 1 Timothy tells us the same thing. That's true. But she still knew the command of God not to eat, Genesis 2. She knew that. And she even tells Satan, well, we can't eat of that tree. She tells him that, and yet she violates it. 
She had the word from God and chose to ignore it in favor of the word from a serpent. Now, I know that demonic forces can be involved in temptation. I get that. I don't deny that at all. But there's something else we need to consider, and that is what James said. I think I have these verses in your notes. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. Think about this. Each person is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. We're enticed by our own lust. It's on us. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's kind of like a birthing process all the way from birth, old age, and death. Sin is birth, grows to be a full-grown man, then, then dies. That's how sin is like. It's each person is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Lust conceives, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, he goes on to say, my beloved brethren. In other words, place the blame squarely where it belongs, on your own shoulders. And I need to do the same. Own up to it. Don't try to hide from the Lord. Confess it. Repent of it. Forsake it. Do what the prodigal son did. After the prodigal son in Luke 15 had gone on a sinning spree, had inherited a portion of the father's wealth and lived it up and partied and went on a sinning spree, he finally came back to his senses and he went back to his father and he said, Father, this is what Adam should have said, by the way, Luke 15, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Plain and simple. Repentance. And what was the result? The father had compassion on him, welcomed him back home, received him back. In the same way, the Lord, that's what the Lord's looking for. That's the Lord, what the Lord was looking for from Adam. Come back home. Adam, you've sinned. Confess it. He wants his erring children to come to him and confess in true repentance. He is a gracious, loving Heavenly Father. He talks about Matthew 7. He says, if you fathers, being evil, can do good things for your children, how much more will the Father in heaven do good, give good things to those who ask him? Do you think that I'm less of a good father than you are? And so we should come to him. He's a compassionate Heavenly Father. He will welcome us home. Well, we'll pick it up next week in verse 14, but for now, let's close out in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to have this time together tonight. We pray that you will help us to be people who repent, Lord, people who uh, don't hide and don't uh, delay in all these things with our sin. Help us to keep short accounts and realize we're accountable to you so we can walk with you, Lord, as you want us to, so we can commune with you and fellowship with you and worship you in spirit and in truth. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.